Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you on the Monday evening where we will begin a new study. As I promised last week, uh, we are going to take up the book of Genesis this evening. And for the first few evenings, it's really going to be about laying the foundation, um, how to study sacred scripture, and then in turn, how to interpret the book of Genesis we're going to draw from sacred tradition for sure, so as to better understand how to interpret sacred scripture. But before we get into the book of Genesis and this new study that I'm really excited to engage with you on, I do want to take time to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to listen to Seeds of Truth, to listen to just not me, but those who I have on with me, engage all of those important aspects of the faith life. In our new weekly schedule, Monday and Tuesdays will be devoted to the book of Genesis. Wednesday, as I talked about last week, is going to be about finding Christ in cinema and books, and that'll be with Father Mike Ritter. And then Thursday, I will continue to do what I've been doing in answering your questions, special topic Thursday, an evening that is tailored to your questions. Now, brothers and sisters, when we approach the Bible— we approach Jesus, the Word of God, right? And in order to encounter Jesus, we must approach Him in a prayerful study of the inspired Word of God, of sacred Scripture. So, from the outset, what I want us to understand is that we will not come to understand what we need to understand if we don't start on bended knee. You've heard me say it before, all good theology starts on bended knee. All good study of sacred scripture starts on bended knee. So very important, especially with a book like this, uh, the book of Genesis, this first book in the Bible. It was about, what, a year ago that I started a study on the book of Revelation. And in doing so, I really received this sense that there was something going on with you as there was with me. I know this to some degree because I can see that <laughs> that programming was number one on my hit list. So my sense of it is that something similar will be going on with the book of Genesis. And why not? When you look at the Bible, you have what? The first book in Genesis and the last book in Revelation. And really, you can't understand sacred scripture as you ought if we don't read the Bible from start to finish, right? How can we possibly understand book two, Exodus, if we don't first understand book one, Genesis? How could we understand book 73, Revelation, if we don't first understand Genesis? As I noted in our study on the book Revelation, as we are engaging some of Genesis in Revelation, to interpret one is to interpret the whole, is to engage the whole, right? So to interpret the book of Revelation is to engage the whole, which of course always includes the book of Genesis. I mean, if you were to think about it, my friends, 
Who, when reading a book, starts in chapter 28, 46, or, or in the case of the book Revelation, 73? You start with the first book, right? In this case, Genesis. Sacred Scripture is the drama of salvation history. It is a book from which we are to read from 1 to 73. And I say 1 to 73 because there's 73 books, right? 46 old, 27 new. So if we are going to understand the narrative of salvation history, we don't just start, say, in book 47, the Gospel of Matthew. We start with the book of Genesis. Certainly, we can read the Gospel of Matthew and be moved. And yes, it's the first book of the New Testament, so there's something there. But my point here is, my friends, if we want to understand the whole narrative of salvation history, we start with the book of Genesis, and only then can we begin to understand every subsequent book, which includes, oh, by the way, the New Testament, right? The Gospel of Matthew, even the epistles we just studied in Paul's epistles to the church of Corinth and to Philemon, as well as, of course, the book of Revelation. There is something uniquely to be said about doing a study on the book of Genesis, especially in light of our study on the book of Revelation, because you really have a deeper sense of how God comes full circle in salvation history, echoing so many themes and, and symbols and signs in Revelation that were in the book of Genesis. So again, my friends, the book of Genesis will afford us many opportunities to just not engage the text of Genesis for what it is, but also all of salvation history, how it kind of projects forward so as to better understand just not who God is, but how He calls us, how He calls us into a personal relationship. I mean, it is there in the opening chapter, and I'm very excited to engage that with you. Okay, now, as I noted, we have to lay some groundwork. And in order to lay some groundwork, we have to get into some technical terms of what the church means when she talks about such words as inspiration and errancy, especially as sacred scripture itself speaks to these. Now, I'm going to be drawing from different commentaries and a number of different reads throughout our study on the book of Genesis. In principle, I will be drawing from the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible. It's one of those commentaries that draws richly from the church fathers. If you were hearing that phrase for the first time, or maybe a second time, the church fathers are those first Christian teachers, those first Christian preachers, those first catechists, those first educators of our Christian faith. Whatever denomination you belong to, when I talk about the church fathers, I'm also talking about your church fathers. And by that I mean those who are studying sacred scripture teaching sacred scripture in those first few centuries. And I really want all of you to understand that because I don't want you thinking that I'm pulling from some isolated source. No, to be quoting the church fathers is to be quoting those first Christian teachers that were really the gospel's first echo, right? When Jesus says, go therefore and teach, we draw from just not, of course, Jesus himself and and St. Paul and the authors of the New Testament, but also, my friends, those who were the first to hear that command and followed through on, on that call to teach. All right, so inspiration, inerrancy, laying the foundation. 
The church makes certainly mighty claims for the Bible, does it not? And our acceptance of these claims are essential if we are to read the scriptures and apply them to our lives as the church intends. So it is never enough to merely nod at words such as inspired or, or inerrant. We have to understand what these terms mean, and we have to make that understanding our own. Really, if you were to think about it, <laughs> what we believe about the Bible will inevitably influence the way we read the Bible, right? And of course, the way we read the Bible, in turn, will determine what we get out of its sacred pages. These principles hold true no matter what uh, you read, right? Whether it be a news report, an advertisement, a doctor's prescription, how or whether we read these things, do they not depend largely upon our preconceived notions about the, the reliability and authority of the resources, and, and consequently the potential they have for affecting our lives? In some cases, you can even say that to misunderstand, say, a document's authority can lead to dire consequence, right? In other ways, maybe it can keep us from enjoying rewards that are rightfully ours. In the case of the Bible, both the rewards and the consequences involve take on what we can call, and what the Ignatius Commentary calls, really an ultimate value, the highest value, the supreme value, the value that is the sum total. Why? Because it bears salvific meaning. So, what does the church mean then when she affirms the words of St. Paul that we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Theoneostos in the Greek. All scripture is inspired by God. Now, if you're to get underneath that Greek, a term that literally means God breathed, we can get a sense of what it means, right? That God breathed forth his word in the scriptures as you and I breathe forth air when we speak. This means that God is the primary author of the Bible. Certainly, he employed human authors in this task as well, but he did not merely assist them while they wrote or, or subsequently approve what they had written. No, my friends. God, the Holy Spirit, is the principal author of sacred scripture, while the human writers are instrumental authors. The human authors are instruments, vessels, if you will. So by that we mean these human authors freely wrote everything, and only those things that God wanted. The Word of God and the very words of God. My friends, this miracle of dual authorship extends to all of sacred Scripture, to the whole of the biblical text, and to every one of its parts, so that whatever the human authors affirm, God likewise affirms through their words. Now, the principle of biblical inerrancy follows logically from this principle of divine authorship. Why? Well, my dear friends, can God lie? Can God lie? God is absolute truth, right? Just not another truth, but the truth. Why? Because what does he say in John chapter 14, verse 6? I am the way, the life, and the truth. 
He is the absolute sum total of truth. There is no lie in God. This is why Satan is the father of all lies. As God is absolute truth, Satan is absolute lies. Okay? So, God cannot lie. He cannot make mistakes. Since the Bible is divinely inspired, it must be without error in everything that its divine and human authors affirm to be true. Brothers and sisters, inerrancy is our guarantee that the words and deeds of God found in the Bible are unified and true. We could say declaring with one voice the wonders of his saving love. The wonders of his saving love. Now, the guarantee of inerrancy does not mean, however, that the Bible is some kind of all-purpose encyclopedia of information covering every field of study as some want to treat it, okay? I don't know if you are one of those people, but we have to understand it is not that. First and foremost, it is a religious text that communicates the saving love of God, who is creator, yes, but certainly first father. So the Bible then is not, for example, a textbook in the empirical sciences, and it should not be treated as one. When biblical authors relate facts of the natural order, we can be sure, my friends, that they are speaking in a purely descriptive way, and in a way as it's perceived to the senses. It is not recording scientific data. We have to apply what Pope Benedict XVI, what Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI calls the hermeneutic of faith, which is to simply say, well, what I just said, really, <laughs> that to understand sacred scripture as first a religious text is to understand that we must approach the Bible on bended knee and with faith. That doesn't mean there aren't sciences involved, certainly it communicates uh, moral sciences, for sure, of course. But if we treat the Bible as a proof text to the natural sciences, we will fail in our interpretation. Now, implicit in these doctrines, my friends, these doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy, is God's desire to make himself known to the world and to enter a loving relationship with every man, woman, and child he has created. This is why we have the Bible. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is our family heirloom, okay? It is our family heirloom. If we want to get to know who we are in our spiritual family tree, then open up the sacred text and study well what we're about to study, the book of Genesis, because there's no better place to begin than from the beginning. We are studying our family tree, our spiritual family tree, our ancestors. And so, yeah, roll up your sleeves. Get to know who you are. There's so much value in coming to understand where we come from in our natural ancestry, right? I have met so many different people who have been so deeply moved by just getting to know where they come from, whether it be Germany, France, Italy, Mexico, Spain, maybe the Orient, wherever you find yourself, you're moved by those who have gone before you and what they did to make possible what you have. 
Well, hopefully, my friends, by the end of our study on the book of Genesis, you will be moved by your spiritual lineage, your spiritual pedigree. Why? Well, because we are going to examine closely what our spiritual forefathers did for us, the kind of tenacity, faithful tenacity they bore witness to in their journey with God. And hopefully, the inspired Word of God inspires us. Brothers and sisters, God gave us the Scriptures not to just inform us, but also to motivate us. Because more than anything else, He wants to save us. And how that inspiration and revelation encourages the encounter, encounter, we will come to appreciate throughout this study for sure those all-important words that come to us from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation and do so in fear and trembling. In fear and trembling. So God's word is thus saving. It is fatherly and it is personal because it speaks directly to us. Brothers and sisters, we must never be indifferent to its content because after all, the word of God is at once the object, cause, and support of our faith. St. Jerome once said that ignorance of scriptures is ignorance of Christ. And I'll add, as ignorance of scripture leads to an ignorance of Christ, then it leads to an ignorance of God's saving fatherly love. And to miss out on that, my friends, would be tragic, tragic. And we don't want to miss out on that. Now, what about its authorship? Nowhere does the book of Genesis identify its author. As the Ignatius uh, Catholic Study Bible notes, the vast stretch of Jewish and Christian tradition credits the work, along with the rest of the Pentateuch, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to who but Moses. This would mean that Genesis was first put into writing during the lifetime of the lawgiver, which has been dated either in the 1400s or the 1200s. I tend to, to see more the 1400s, and we'll talk more about that when we get into the book of Genesis. Now, modern scholarship has largely abandoned the tradition of mosaic authorship in favor of a theory called multiple authorship. This newer paradigm, uh, called the documentary hypotheses, basically holds that Genesis and the Pentateuch as a whole is the work of several writers whose contributions were pieced together into a single literary work long after the time of Moses. Now, the documentary scholars generally contend that Genesis is a composite of two sources, the J source and the E source. The J for the Yahwist source and the E for the Elohist source. They were joined together and later expanded by the additions of the P source or the priestly source. On this hypothesis, the composition of Genesis probably began around 900 BC and came to an end around 400 BC, sometime after the return of the Babylonian exile. Most who adopt this view, biblical theologians who adopt this view, acknowledge that the stories in Genesis are often much older than their written form, and some would even allow that certain parts of its contents may indeed be mosaic in origin, that is to say, authored by Moses. You will hear me use the word mosaic, okay? That's just a, a reference to the figure of Moses. 
In the final analysis, when it comes to authorship of this book, scholarship is not per se bound to espouse towards any particular view of uh, the authorship and date of Genesis. In point of fact, scholars are free to investigate uh, the historical background of the book within the doctrinal framework of sacred scripture. Sacred scripture's divine inspiration, of course, without any disparagement or demeaning of the church's tradition. So you interpret the book of Genesis in the light of the whole of sacred scripture, as we've talked about. You can gain much, much insight into how to interpret sacred scripture by reading other books in the Bible. I mean, consider St. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 14 to 20, where Paul explains Jesus as a new Adam, right? As a new Adam. Why would Paul be talking about Jesus as a new Adam if Adam never existed? That wouldn't make any sense. This is what I mean by reading just not one verse in light of the next verse or one chapter in light of the next chapter or even one book in light of the next book. No, one book in light of the whole. This is so important as we read the sacred text. Okay, how about its structure? I like what the Ignatius commentary does here. Genesis can be divided neatly into two major movements. Chapters 1 to 11 cover the the distant eons of primeval history, while chapters 12 to 50 cover the shorter span of patriarchal history. That probably begins around 1800 BC with the figure of Abraham, huh? So chapters 1 to 11 speak to history before patriarchal history, chapters 12 to 50. Now these two movements, differing in scope and perspective, create what we can call a funnel effect. That's a phrase the Ignatius commentary uses, funnel effect. What do we mean by that? Well, the primeval narrative is cosmic in scope. It stretches across undateable ages, right? And it presents a world that is steadily beaten down by sin. In contrast, the patriarchal narrative kind of narrows the focus to a single family instead of the human family as a whole. We could say it slows the pace of the story to four generations, and it outlines God's plan to restore the world to a state of blessing, to a state of blessing. Now, within these two halves, the internal structure of Genesis is marked off by what we can call recurring formulas or recurring phrases. These are the generations, or these are the descendants, or this is the history. Eleven times the underlying Hebrew expression occurs in Genesis, each time kind of pointing the way forward to a new phase or development in the story. Chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 10, so on and so forth. These are the generations. These are the descendants. This is the history. All right, I'm looking up at the clock and we're out of time. We're almost out of time. Just a word about the title, uh, the Hebrew title for Genesis. The opening line to the book of Genesis is Bereshit, meaning in the beginning. The Greek Septuagint entitles the book Genesis, meaning origin or birth, as it does in the Latin Vulgate. Now, this, of course, is appropriate because 
These headings correctly indicate that Genesis is a book of beginnings. It narrates the origin of the world in chapter 1, the origin of the human race in chapter 2, the origin of sin and suffering in chapter 3, the origin of nations in chapter 10, the origin of languages in chapter 11, and of course, the origin of Israel as a tribal family descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in chapters 12 to 50. Indeed, it is a book of origins. It is a book of beginnings. And starting our next time together, (laughs) we will engage in the beginning in greater detail. Amen. Amen. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.